0: of God's Word back to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 8. Mark's Gospel and chapter 8. Well, just like we did uh, last week, we're going to overlap previously studied verses with new verses tonight. I think it's helpful to do so here at the end of chapter 8, not only for the purpose of review, but because these passages are so closely linked together. Uh, So I do want to begin with a brief review of what we considered together two weeks ago, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. If you remember that account, the central question raised was the question that has been at the heart of Mark's gospel from the very beginning, namely, who is Jesus? Everyone was talking about it. Some said that he was John the Baptist, others said that he was Elijah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus, he focuses his disciples, uh, He focuses on his disciples, and he asks them in verse 29, "But who do you say that I am?" Which then leads to this marvelous declaration by Peter as the spokesperson for the group that Jesus is the Christ. And it's the first time since the opening verse of chapter 1 that Jesus has explicitly been identified as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Son of David, and anointed in time King of God's everlasting kingdom. And we noted that this is the central point of Mark's gospel. Everything up to this point has been leading to Peter's confession. But instead of rallying the Israelites and coronating their king, Jesus puts a damper on their excitement by strictly charging them to tell no one about who he really is. And things get even more confusing for the disciples from there as Jesus reveals more to them about who he really is and what he has come to do, which leads us to our passage for tonight. I'll begin reading for us in verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, Remember, the disciples were like that blind man that Jesus just healed, whose sight was healed in stages. Their sight, that their understanding of Jesus' identity was not yet complete. It needed to be clarified. They needed to be given more sight, and they still had much to learn about the Christ and about his mission. In many ways, he was an unexpected messiah. A surprising Christ. He is the Christ who had to die. He is the Christ who came to suffer and to be rejected and to be killed. And when you consider Mark's gospel up to this point, all of the power and authority that has been put on display in the life of Jesus of Nazareth up to this point, climaxing in Peter's declaration that you are the forever king the promised Christ, you feel the bombshell impact of verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And remember, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. He uses it again uh, at the end of our passage, in the final verse, he he never refers to himself as the Christ, as as Messiah, the promised figure of the Anointed One, the Son of David. It was what was front and center in the people's uh, imaginations and end times expectations—that the Messianic expectation. But Jesus wants to remind them of other promised figures from the Old Testament which were not at the forefront of their expectations the absence of which had led to the skewed understanding of who the Messiah would be and what he would come to accomplish and so Jesus he draws from their scriptures uh, uh, he he draws other passages that were written about himself hundreds of years before his birth and he's bringing together in a powerful way here, that son of man figure from Daniel 7 with the suffering servant figure of Isaiah 53. And he's making it clear that these promises, they are both pointing to one man. And so Jesus is able to declare the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. And you hear that Isaiah language, and be killed and after three days rise again. His disciples are partially blind. They they, they cannot see this. They can't accept this. They don't get this. They, They don't even seem to hear the part about rising again, which again is part of the prophecy of Isaiah 53. They just hear that Jesus, whom they've just declared to be their king, he's suddenly talking madness. He's not talking about establishing his kingdom and conquering their enemies. He's now talking about suffering and dying, being rejected. And so Peter, after rightly declaring Jesus to be the Christ, he actually starts rebuking his Messiah, getting in Jesus's face and telling him that he is wrong about himself, that he doesn't have to suffer, he doesn't have to die. And so Peter then gets rebuked by Jesus. In verse 34, Jesus, he recognizes the influence of Satan, the tempter. He sees that leaven of the Pharisees at work in Peter's heart, those those vestiges of unbelief, and he rebukes him. He says, Peter, you're not thinking God's thoughts. You are thinking the way men think. The disciples, they're not seeing the full picture of who Jesus is a picture and a portrait that was painted for them in the Old Testament scriptures. And so from this point forward, with much repetition, Jesus teaches them about the way of the cross by constantly bringing together the Son of Man figure from Daniel 7 with the suffering, suffering servant figure of Isaiah 53 and making it plain that he has to suffer, that he has come To die, that he has to be killed. And if this topsy turvy turning of the expectation of Jesus' life from from, from wondrous power and ruling authority to rejection and even death, if it came as a bombshell, so too did Jesus' expectation of those who would follow him. Because not only is Jesus the Christ, who must die. But in our new verses for tonight, we see that Jesus is the Christ whose followers must die. So look again at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now it's right here where you begin to see how your personal answer to Jesus' question up in verse 29, who do you say that I am? It has tremendous significance for your life. Because if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and if you desire to be one of his disciples, then your life is no longer your own. None of it. There's no area of your life that is off limits to the king's authority. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You must give up your life completely to him and must place him first in allegiance and be willing to follow him at any cost. This is the only way to follow Jesus. This is the only true acknowledgement of his Messiahship. But Jesus promises that if you will lose your life, if you'll lose your life for his sake, for the gospel's sake, then you will in fact save it unto eternity. So notice with me the flow of thought here in these verses. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, when a man was condemned to die by Roman execution, by by crucifixion, as part of his death sentence, he'd actually be required to carry the beam of his own cross to the site where he would be crucified. This would publicly display his submission to the Roman state. This criminal no longer had control over his own life. He was no longer free to go where he wanted to go. He he was no longer free to do what he desired to do, as was made abundantly clear as he carried this instrument of execution, this cross, to his own death. Now, Jesus' call is not a literal call for every one of his disciples to walk behind him to Golgotha and to, to be hung upon a cross next to him and the two criminals, right? Now, this is a lifestyle that Jesus presents with the metaphor of dying, of being crucified. And I say lifestyle Because this is not something that you merely do when you first become a Christian, or something that you do only once at at some point after you've believed in Jesus as Savior. No, this this self-denying death march is something that is to characterize your daily life. It's a cross-shaped, cruciform cross-centered way of living. A little book that uh, I often recommend to people, I would have brought it up with me to wave, but I just gave away my last copy to a brother on Sunday, and I highly recommend it if you've never read it before. It's a little book, easy to read, a little book by C.J. Mahaney titled Living the Cross-Centered Life, Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. So helpful. So helpful. In it, he writes this, quote, we make time for what we truly value. <clears throat> we build habits and routines around the things that really matter to us. This is an important principle to understand as we seek to build our lives around the gospel. Do you want a cross-centered life? a cross-centered life is made up of cross-centered days. Love that quote. And in in living the cross-centered life, Mahaney gives solid help for how we live the cross-shaped, cruciform, cross-centered way of life that Jesus calls us to. You know, there's a false gospel, an antithetical gospel, And it's a false gospel that is infiltrating countries all over the the world. It's just taking over. And it's coming from America. We're exporting it. It's a false American gospel that says that if you have faith, then you'll receive blessings. You'll enjoy good health. You'll enjoy success. You'll enjoy an easy life. You'll enjoy material prosperity. And if you, if you give donations to this or that anointed ministry, then God will double or, or triple or quadruple your bank account. That that's what Jesus wants for each and every one of you. And, and that's what you'll experience, that blessing, if you have the faith. But that is a lie from Satan. What does Jesus say? He says, the Son of Man came to suffer many things and to be rejected and to die and if you follow me you have to deny yourself take up your cross follow me along the way of suffering and rejection and even death glory treasure that comes after the resurrection for us, just like it did for Jesus, there's a cross before the crown, and as we follow the one who suffered mistreatment, well, we ourselves will likewise suffer mistreatment, won't we? The apostle Paul, he says in Second Timothy three twelve, he says that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and he says along with barnabas in acts 14:22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god that the way of the christian life is the way of suffering of laying aside concerns about your rights and your comforts of denying yourself taking up your cross following Jesus on the path of suffering. The Son of Man came to suffer many things. His followers must suffer too. Pastor John Piper, he gave a now famous sermon in Birmingham, Alabama. On, uh, it was in November of 2005. And he said this in the most viewed sermon clip of all time. Uh, if you've never watched it, I'd encourage you to go find it online this week and, and, to, and to watch it. It's so helpful to reorient our minds, because in one way or another, we all, all of us, have vestiges of this false American gospel in our hearts and in our minds. Piper says this, I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. It is not the gospel. It is being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the people. Believe this message. Your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You'll have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. And here's the reason that it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, did Jesus give you that? Yeah, well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above the giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands dead on the street. And you say, through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. We will get through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious as God, not as a giver of cars or safety or health. Oh, how I pray that Birmingham would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Indeed, America would be purged and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him in the midst of loss, not prosperity. Love that quote. Watch that clip. It's amazing. If you're to follow Jesus, you must relinquish your own life. You must die to yourself. You must die to any claim that you are the one who has authority and control to direct your own life. You must die to the pursuit of your own personal happiness and fulfillment and self-esteem and find your joy in complete submission to King Jesus. So, so you look now to Jesus as the one who leads you and guides you and provides for you. you. You relinquish control of your life even as you recognize that where Jesus leads you is into suffering, into sacrifice, into sacrificial love on behalf of others just as he displayed towards us, even possibly into physical harm and yes, even literal death in some cases, for his namesake. Now, I I do want to press the point here. Has Jesus misled us up to this point? I I mean, this Savior who we just saw a few weeks ago, in, in this miraculous feeding of the many thousands, he provided so abundantly. Has he suddenly turned on us to give us over to death? Maybe you almost feel that way during this strange season of life. Maybe things in your life aren't going the way that you want them to go, and the way that you feel tonight is that your Savior has just given you over to suffering and death. Has Jesus, has he misled us? Well, verse 35 makes it clear that when you lose your life for Jesus, you will Find true life in the end. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever for loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. If you take your happiness and your well being and your life and your salvation into your own hands and you seek to find those things fulfilled in this earthly life and pursue those things, if despite you know your lip service to Jesus, you pursue other things and don't submit to Jesus and to his sovereign authority and to his wise provision, you will lose everything in the end because you haven't really trusted into Jesus. And, and by pursuing your own life, You've shown that you have no true part in him. But if you have been granted to to die to yourself, turning away from the belief that you can rule your, your own life or achieve your own salvation, turning instead to Jesus, trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, living your life under his authority, seeking his glory and not your own, then Jesus promises you that you will know true and everlasting life. And notice that in in verses 36 to 38, Jesus makes clear that what's at stake here really is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Sorry. Just hit the wrong button up here. That's for later. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You hear all of that uh, Daniel chapter 7 language there. Son of Man coming in his glory, the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So, so there is coming a day, There's coming a a day soon when King Jesus, the Christ, when he comes again, as he mentioned so briefly in verse 31, he would not only suffer many things and be rejected and be killed, but what? After three days, he would rise again, and this is exactly what he did. He rose again, and then later he, he ascended into heaven where he is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. And according to his promise, he will soon return again bodily, not as the son of man who must die, but as the glorious, risen son of man who has received all dominion and glory, as you read about in Daniel 7, who will come again and will come as the representative of all heavenly authority and power, and, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus returns, there's no amount of earthly gain or temporal comfort that is worth facing his eternal condemnation. And the converse is also true. When Jesus returns, there is no amount of earthly sorrow or suffering that could outweigh his coming glory and the eternal reward of everlasting life in his presence forever and ever in the new creation. So here's the point of our passage tonight. The the, the fundamental issue that Jesus will take up with each one of us will not be, you know, did you marry that person or not? Did you pursue that career or or not? Did you move to that city or not? The fundamental issue will be in your marriage or in your singleness, in your work or in your leisure, in every place that you lived, in every crisis that you faced, in your wealth or in your poverty, in your health or in your sickness. Were you ashamed of me, or did you trust me? Did did you go the way of the cross? Did you believe that I am worth it? Did you believe that I am who I said I am? Did you recognize me to be the Christ, the Savior? Did you trust me in my death, my resurrection for your salvation? Or did you trust in yourself, or did you trust elsewhere? Did you seek your own glory, or did you seek my glory? That's the question that every person has to answer from Jesus. Every other question that you may be facing in your life right now, it pales in comparison and in its significance to the question from Jesus up in verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Let us pray. Our merciful God, we we thank you for your most precious gift, the gift of your Son who came into the world, who lived for your glory in our place, died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to your right hand. We thank you that you have told us who your Son is. Give us the grace this week to to lose our lives, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus, who's coming home soon for us. It's in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's respond with uh, one final hymn that I prematurely started for us a second ago. Uh, and uh, let us uh, sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. It's number 585 in the red. 585 in the red. I picked this one because it's a prayer uh, that I think really goes uh, well with uh, the teaching that we just heard from our Savior. And uh, the things that we're praying in this, in this hymn, I just want to point them out before we sing of all of the things that we're asking God in this prayer to take. Take my life. Take my moments and my days. Take my hands. Take my feet. Take my voice. Take my lips. Take my silver and my gold. Take my intellect. Take my will. Take my heart. Take my love. Take myself. Let us sing together.